Hi, my name is Kibali Murethi and I am the host of Ari Diaries. Ari is Kiswahili for Initiative, Spirit and Drive. In the first series, we will be speaking to a number of amazing women who are at the embodiment of the Ari spirit. This series is in celebration of International Women's Month, whose themes are Choose to Challenge and Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. Karibu. Our guest today is Nerima Wako Ojiwa. Please introduce yourself. Thank you for having me. So my name is uh, Nerima, as you've said. I will call myself a Pan-African. Mm. I love everything African. Yeah. And I love music. And I am also the executive director of Siasa Place, which is an NGO that focuses on youth inclusion mm -hmm. in electoral processes, governance, and educating them on the constitution. Yes, mm -hmm. which is very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell us a bit about your background. Where were you born? A little bit about your family. So I'm a Nairobi child mm. uh, all the way. I don't speak any of my parents' languages. So my dad is Luya yeah. and my mom is Mijikenda. Yeah. She's from the coast. And I guess people find that uh, strange, but they decided together not to teach us any mm. of their languages um, because they thought that they should teach their children that they're Kenyan first and to love, yeah. to just love the diversity. So because of that, I come from a family of four kids and um, I'm the third. Yes. So I would consider myself a typical middle child. And so I've always been a little bit independent ever since I was very, very young and sort of been very hard-headed. So grew up on Gong Road, yeah. went to school in um, St. Nicholas Primary School, Catholic, yeah. very Catholic. Very Catholic. Yeah. And then I went to high school, I went to Aga Khan Academy. Mm. So that was a contrast because that was now Islamic. Yes. And so just seeing that growing up was interesting. And then I went to university in the States. So I lived in the States for about seven years and came back. So I am married and yes. I have a little boy yeah. who's now five months. Okay. Mm -hmm. What did you study when you were in university? I studied uh, public administration and uh, that's my master's. But my undergrad is in uh, journalism and sociology. Yeah. So I really love um, writing. I love stories. I already said I love music. But most of all, I love studying people. And also come to find out, my grandfather was also a sociologist. He was a doctor. Okay. And so I guess it runs in the family because I'm a people-watching kind of person. And just learning about people's different cultures and stuff really intrigues me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so did public, um, did journalism and sociology, then public administration, then you came back. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what did you do when you came back to Kenya? So... Hmm. I was working for an NGO in D.C. Mm -hmm. So I'm in D.C. and I loved it. D.C. was everything that I was. Okay. Just because of the whole governance and being in the capital and all that good stuff. And then while I was there, the program that I was in charge of was about youth activities or youth programs in Africa. We did a lot of peace conflict and resolution work. So now 
I found out that in our team of about 80 people in office, we were only three Africans on the team, even though they had about 33 offices in Africa. And it was now during the time of um, Bukina, not Bukina Faso, Nkurunzinza, when they were just sort of going through a shift with Burundi. Yes, Burundi. And I remember, you know, wondering how the youth were actually feeling or engaging or what was going on with young people there. And it made me question what's happening in Kenya with the youth. Yes. So that's when I decided to just move home. And so my parents thought it was a little crazy. Um, I had an opportunity that not a lot of people get. And I'm moving to Kenya with no job prospects, really. And then I'm coming to do something like what? Start something (laughs) in this economy. Uh, So it didn't make a lot of sense to them. So when I came back, I just started doing consultancies. Mm -hmm. So working for people in terms of a lot of communications as a program officer for a number of organizations. And I would use the money that I got from that salary to sort of start up now, see us up on the side. And and it grew. It grew after just um, engaging some friends who are interested in starting it together. And from just having these discussions in town, you know, at places that were almost free. <laughs> and, you know, just, you know, chipping in and paying for those bills and snacks. Yeah. It began to grow into something larger. And so that's when we decided to register it officially and, you know, form this organization, which I now run today. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what does he has a place? What does you talked about youth inclusion mm-hmm. and like electoral electoral processes, governance, but talk about Siasa Place mm-hmm. in detail. So initially I tell people like when you have an idea mm. and you start it off, it's extremely scattered. Just be flexible about change. Yes. Uh because it's not what I envisioned it to be. Right now. Right now. Initially. Yeah. Yeah. It's just morphed into something on its own. So now where we are, uh, why we fight for youth inclusion is because we found out or we began to see that a lot of decisions were made for young people without the engagement of young people. And the excuse would always be, well, youth don't really know about what they would need. Mm. They don't really have the solutions. Uh, There are no serious youth organizations. And they're the drivers of conflict and all of that. Yes, exactly. And so forming this entity that's able to articulate policy and advocate for things that are youthful, I think is something that is needed in this country. The biggest thing that I'm proud of is just getting to hear from youth in rural areas because we work in about 12 counties. Yes. And to get, you know, feedback where someone tells you, I learned how to look at a budget in our county. I learned how to demand for certain things to be prioritized in that budget. And I'm now attending public participation forums. And to be able to support youth who have begun to create lobby groups in these counties and doing the technical work from here in Nairobi, 
has seen a tremendous change. We've seen budgets in counties that had zero for youth. Yeah. Now we're seeing 30 million going, you know, to be processed yes. for youth work. And that's something that it's because youth pushing and demanding for it. So I think the biggest thing that I would say I was very proud of was when the president appointed a board chair for the National Employment Authority who was not qualified mm. And we took the matter to court mm -hmm. and we won. Yeah. She was fired. Mm -hmm. And that for me was huge because it shows you that our judiciary can support you if you have the right um, substantial evidence. And also the and fact that... if you know how to engage with yeah, the processes, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of people think that um, that's not for me. I'm not that kind of person. Everybody has a right as a citizen to engage courts. Yeah. And even the fact that we've now been courted in the Kenya law is huge. So we're just pushing to have more of that in terms of pushing for more spaces for young people. I've also pushed for young women to be in newspapers. Yes. Uh, so there are a lot of columns in newspapers through my work <laughs> of pushing editors that it's made me proud to see. Because mm. a lot of times when we open our newspapers, we see a lot of men yeah. and elderly men. But now you can see little speckles of young women making comments on columns. Yeah. And that's because of something that I saw and we saw was important. So those are some of the changes when we say youth inclusion. Yeah. Um, what has Siasa Place taught you about movement building and about youth engaging in like demographic transitions and all of that? Yeah. It's taught me that there are a lot of challenges that youth are facing. Mm. I've become, I guess... I I resonate, I relate, because a lot of times people will be like, you don't know anything. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this image of, of youth just listening to loud music and dancing their heart away, and that's all they do. They just know how to party, mm. and that's it. Yeah. They don't add any value yeah. to the country, which, which is, is a not, shame. Which is not the truth yeah, at all. Because even with the spread of COVID, the first to be called super spreaders were youth wasn't the politicians mm. who were busy gallivanting through the counties, mm. holding public meetings. It was youth. So it's it's allowed me to see from, from their angle, some of the things that they're dealing with when we talk about, you know, depression on the rise, talk, mental health, suicide. We're talking about a terrible economy, no opportunities. I mean, there's just so many challenges that they're facing. The fact that they can have joy is amazing. Yeah. In itself. It's resistance. Yes. Yeah. So for me, I view that as a strength. As much as there's a sense of naivety, yeah. I think that they have this energy that if it's tapped into just right, then you're able to just make an impact that people do not realize how powerful it is. So I think working with youth one is to be patient with them. Yes. We've had to start from scratch because a lot of times we go into conversations with young people assuming we make assumptions that they already know the constitution they don't they already know the processes they don't they already understand the language used they, they don't. don't so you have to go from the bare minimum yes and and you know trying to ask them where they are 
And every youth group that we deal with is completely different. We have some who are tech savvy. We have some who are in complete rural areas Mm. who still depend on notice boards and coordinating that. And some who are on Facebook all the time. So they're just so diverse because we're so many. So to be patient and also to, I say not to have, not to um, psych them up to have such uh, large expectations mm-hmm. of the engagement. Because a lot of times when they learn these things, they get so energized and they're like, I can do something about it in my community. And they are met with their first obstacle, which is how slow government is. It yeah. is a snail. It really is. So by the time you write a letter and you hear a response, it might not be in two weeks. It might not be in one month. And so just being honest with young people to pace themselves. Yeah. And I'm always asking them, um, especially when they're mobilizing around issues, to tag team. Yeah. So that if you're leading it, you're burnt out. You don't come and discourage everybody else to stop the process. You take time out and somebody else leads the process. Yeah. And it's okay to be tired. Yeah. It's natural. Yeah. So those are some of the things that I've learned working with young people. Okay. Um... COVID last year, 2020 hit and the world was shut down, is still shut down in many ways. And there were such strange ramifications. Like you talked about unemployment, just an explosion of mental health issues, violence, you know, because there were so many young people now at home and before they could escape with work, with school. What are some of the challenges specifically that you have had to deal with as Siasa Place and what are some of the interventions that you've been able to come up with mm-hmm. as an organization? So already in our engagements dealing with youth, we had young women participating less, right? So it's because young women end up doing the chores at home or taking care of younger siblings. So like you said, as COVID happened, if a young lady was in school, say university, she's now at home. Yes. So if you were to compare her to her counterpart or if she had a brother, a similar age, he would not be tasked with taking care of the house as much as she would. So you find she's up by 6 a.m. A lot of households got rid of their house helps because they couldn't afford it. So people were cutting down and you find that they now rely on the girl child. So then paid labor now falls on, yeah. 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 So I saw that a lot where young women were working a lot harder Mm. during this break. Mm. And also the fact that, you know, there were a lot of cases of people feeling depressed because they couldn't get out and work or even hustle. Uh, We're still living in an economy that doesn't really depend or rely on technology. A lot of our labor is manual. Yes. So a lot of our youth depend on like secondhand clothes, selling that, gikomba, that commute, markets. I mean, they have to be out and about. They have to be engaging with other people or in the entertainment industry or the hotel industry. So it's very difficult for them to be able to sustain themselves. So we also saw an increase of uh, depression. And another thing that... I believe was fascinating was being able to see the gaps between counties. Yeah. 
Some counties we were able to write, minimize our interactions, but also transition them to say, if we're having a meeting with the county government, we could have an online engagement. Yes. And I believe that's a reverse mentorship. Because let's be frank and honest, by the time a government official is on a Zoom call, it's the intern who showed you how to get on Zoom. Mm. <laughs> no one wants to admit yeah. that during this period, a lot of youth have been the ones that are setting the pace. Yes. And they've been supporting and showing you how to use this technology, uh, teaching you how to file things online or on cloud without filing things with paper because we deal a lot with government, which is what they do. And that's reverse mentorship. Yes. So we kind of forget that youth actually supported a lot of government offices during this period because they didn't know how to do it. A lot of them, the average age of people who work civil service is mm. 55. Yes. So that's one. But I think also something that uh, stood out to me was the fact that different counties have different connectivity. So there are some counties where we couldn't have any engagement at all because their internet was just terrible, terrible as compared to other counties where they had good internet, they're able to continue the conversation. So it demonstrates to you just how clearly there's a disparity in terms of resources. If technology was to be able to be measured, you would see that there are some counties who don't have access at all. Yes. So they've been left out of that continuation that we're being encouraged to do. And so that's what I would say would be fascinating. Okay. Okay. What are some of the lessons that you learned personally? Um, I guess we can, if you will allow me, maybe delve a little deep into what motherhood has been during a pandemic mm -hmm. and what that has taught you about yourself, about raising a family, and also about leadership and your mm -hmm. organization. It's a very broad question, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I was pregnant during the the lockdown. Yes. So a lot of people didn't know I was actually expecting. And I think it still shocks people that I actually have a child. Yes. Uh, because I guess people feel that they've missed a stage. Uh, because when you see people every day or every other day, you're able to connect the dots. But now for me, I still have to like explain where this child has come from, yes. which is amusing. But also, um, I think it helped me. It helped me because my job is intense, especially when the politics of the country is very engaging. So I can just find myself constantly on the go, following up with what's going on, uh, the latest events, current events. But because of the whole lockdown, it actually gave me a break mm. because it uh, slowed down some of the engagements that were being had. So we didn't have a lot of stuff happening sometimes. And that also allowed me to relax because I realized that I wasn't taking any breaks. Yeah. And that made me realize that I needed to. And also, I've, I have changed our policy on maternity okay. in my organization. Um, it's now at four months. Okay. And then um, the whole year is on flexi plan for the mom. For the father, it's one month. But even for paternity... 
talking with my colleagues. They felt that one month is too long. <laughs> the two weeks, they're like, no, this is enough. I, I, I don't see how I'm going to be home for a whole month. But it's also to realize that it's an important period it to is. also bond with your child. So I would say that also made me rethink that and see how some time limits are not enough. Mm. We don't give enough. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and he's on paternity leave and he got four days. And I was like, that's illegal. Mm. Like in our country, the law is two weeks. So it just shows you that how several organizations in our country uh, don't identify with the importance of bringing life. Yes. Uh, yet they encourage you to reproduce in this country. So that made me evaluate that. But also in terms of managing, it's made me prioritize things. Some things are not that serious. I, I thought that, you know, meeting deadlines was so important. The end all and be all of life. I know. Yeah. But now I'm like, ah, it's not that big deal. It's not that big of a deal. And it's actually changed my viewpoint. I've noticed that even with my own team, I'm not as harsh mm. when it comes to things. I actually try and understand where they are coming from, um, what's happening around you that's causing you to maybe not be as active at as work. As you were. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've found myself asking those questions first before jumping to conclusions and, you know, giving disciplinary action or sending a warning or something. So it's allowed me to be a lot more patient a lot more lenient. And also I have recognized the importance of sleep yeah. <laughs> because um, I can't remember the last time I slept in a stretch, you mm. know, and just seeing how with minimal sleep, how you have to be able to prioritize things in your schedule uh, to get things done and then just be so organized to be able to make sure, okay, this has to keep moving, especially for a woman. Yeah. As a woman CEO, uh, things can just stay still because you're just trying to deal with stuff at home. So that delegation, um, accepting help has been difficult because I'm very type A. Uh, so... Even if I'm at home, just being able to have help and accepting that help has been a learning process for me because I've realized that I can't do it all. I really can't. And it's true. So that's saying that a woman can have it all. I say she cannot. Mm. <laughs> she cannot. Yeah. It is impossible. And why are we trying to place ourselves as super women? We're human. And it's only natural sometimes to just balance and say, no, not now. And just take different moments in your life to rest and rejuvenate yes. and come back. Yes. So for me, that has solidified whether a woman can have it all or not. Okay. Um, I think that if I'm not wrong, there was a time when you were involved with a campaign on food. Wait, was it food security mm -hmm. or food health? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Please talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. So there was a campaign that I was working on under Route to Food. Yes. And it was basically a bill where we were asking Parliament to be able to check the amount of fertilizers or the kind of fertilizer entering our country. Yeah. What happens is we import a lot of this fertilizer, which is toxic. 
Um, as much as it's necessary to use, other countries use certain levels of this fertilizer. So a certain level is legal. Yes. But as soon as it comes to Kenya, we don't have those regulations. So you can find a farmer has used too much or a farmer is using too little. There's no framework. Okay. So what happens is it's unhealthy for the farmer, one, because it exposes him or her. And it's also unhealthy to you because yeah. it's in your food. And the soil as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And the soil. So you'll find that there's going to be an increase in infertility, in cancers, in tumors. And people are wondering where is this coming from? And it's the food that we eat. So basically, the bill was just requesting for our members of parliament to be able to push this along so that we can secure the future of this country. And a lot of people didn't realize that that's what's actually happening. And some of the ingredients that are allowed to be imported are illegal in European countries. Yeah. So we cannot continue to treat our people that way. So that's what the campaign was about. Okay. Um as you speak, I'm noticing the connection between health, well-being, um, engagement, public participation, but also policy. What can, what can, because you work a lot with young people, mm -hmm. but what can young people, what else can young people do mm -hmm. to, to learn more, to engage better with policy, with public participation, to be able to push for for conversations that center their health and well-being. Mm -hmm. What else can young people do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have to go back to why health is so important to me. And it's because, you know, my, my younger brother, when he was 24, yes. when he had, he had kidney failure. Yes. So donating my kidney to him at that age, wow. <laughs> I've never been so low in my life mm. and uh, to the point where you're just about to start life, he was picking and then um, he never drank, he never smoked, he was super healthy, always exercising. Always working out, yeah. Always working out. Yeah. Amongst all my siblings, that was just a shock to all of us. And so until today, we still don't know what happened. Mm. Um, we think it could have been something he was born with. The mm. doctors are not even sure. Uh, so that, that for me just realigned so many things. It made me realize that as a young person, I can get unwell real quick. So it made me realize just how important health is for an individual and to have health policies in a country that care for you. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, you end up doing harambees. We had to. Which is right the now, common story for so many people exactly. in this country. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so many groups donating a few hundreds here, hundreds there, because I don't want to feel like I didn't help you, because I know exactly how it feels yes. to be in that position. But then it shouldn't be so. So I always tell people that, there are certain things that you care about deeply, whether it's business, whether it's the environment, whether it's politics, everything you care about is political. Yes. It is. Because out of that experience with my brother, which really, I believe it enlightened us all, mm. uh, because 
we realized that in this country, if I didn't volunteer, he wouldn't get a donation. There's no law that allows, say, a friend to say, I want to donate my kidney. There's none. You have to be a family member. So if you have no family... You're on your own. You're on your own. And we've not even talked about dialysis. Uh, Even during COVID, dialysis was so scary. My brother kept saying, you know, I'm so scared for people who are on dialysis right now because you're already kind of, you're vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Yeah. And it's something you have to do to survive. So you have to go to the hospital every week, at least twice or three times a week for four hours a stretch, just getting your blood to be cleaned. Yeah. So you need it to survive. And if you don't do it, you will die. And if you come, you may die. Yeah. Those are the choices that people have in this country. Yeah. So for us to be able to just sit down and see, you know, people don't realize that how important that is. Like right now, we've we've lost Lona Irungu. Yeah. She had transplants. Yeah. Three, she was vulnerable. Two, three times, I think, yeah. Yeah. She was in a hospital and she got sick in a hospital. Yeah. So... These are the things that should wake us up and and realize that it's not something that we can play with when we see how much money is lost to corruption. You know, we are losing lives that really, truly, we shouldn't. Mm. We shouldn't. So a lot of times I tell youth to start with what you're passionate about and then follow it. Follow it. If it's business, okay, you're passionate about business, what policies protect your business right now in this country? You know, what are they offering you? And do you see any gaps in that? Do you see any potential to be able to push the government to do more? Right now with BBI, they're pushing BBI down our throats and they're saying there's that tax break. But will that tax break really make a difference? You know? And to just ask questions, to follow up with current events and affairs. So I think even the first place is to just engage because I feel a lot of young people choose to just disconnect, which is unfair, which is unfair to them. Yeah. And and they don't realize how it's going to affect them in the future. It's not. So even right now, um, my brother is an engineer, but you find that he has started a foundation that works on organ donation. Yes. Yeah, that's what he does because he's trying to push for policies that allow people to receive organs from people who are non-family members because what people don't know is I have older, you know, parents and so they couldn't. And so when I ended up donating, my siblings couldn't. I didn't match my brother. Mm. We matched 1%. He's my brother. We matched 1%. Yeah. So a lot of people think that just because I have a sister or brother, they're obviously going to match with me. That mm. is a lie. Yeah. It, it, you might not match. Yeah. Genetics is really weird. I could Com- have genes from my... complex. Yeah, I yeah. could have genes from my grandfather. He could have genes from my grandmother. Yeah. And we just don't match. Those are two different individuals. So it's just for people to realize that there are no nets there are no nets protecting you in this country um, if you're unwell. Yeah. And so he's found himself in that space advocating for things. So I believe that if you search truly deeply things you're passionate about, you'll find yourself advocating in that area yeah. before you even know it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Wow, I don't even know what question to ask after that. Okay, okay. If you could have a conversation with anyone, living or mm-hmm. dead, about anything, who would they be and why? Uh, I would have a conversation with uh, Benazir Bhutto. Okay. Yeah. And I would ask her. She was the first prime minister of? Pakistan. Pakistan, first female prime minister. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would ask her, she knew she was going to die, but why did she go anyway? Um, because I find it fascinating that she had actually already wrapped gifts for her kids for their birthdays. And even the day before, they had tried to go and then they bombed her motorcade and they just missed her. And so she knew the next day they were going to get her. So for me, it would be that, but also to understand how she was able to be the first female prime minister in a very male-dominated society. I mean, come on, it's Pakistan, yeah, it's Pakistan. man. <laughs> how did you do that? Yeah. You know? Uh, I think that is something where she's not talked about enough. Um, her story is not shared about enough, especially it's going to be so inspiring and motivating, especially to women like myself who are in the governance space and just trying to navigate and see that the impossible has been made possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of governance and being in this space, if you could reimagine a governance, if you could reimagine leadership, if you could reimagine inclusion, if you could reimagine gender equality, reduced inequalities, like what would that look like for you? Mm. Being able to walk into a room and not have to second guess myself. Because that happens to me a lot uh, because a lot of the spaces I walk into are still very male-dominated, it being politics, it being governance. I don't want to have to worry about what does my hair look like? What are people going to think about me? What am I wearing? Does this look professional enough? Did I study enough? Do I know my stuff? Is my voice Is my, powerful yeah. enough? <laughs> Do I need to lower my voice? Mm. <laughs> so that people take me seriously. Yeah. So that I don't sound like I'm whining. That if I could just walk into a room and walk in, like how men do, we have hit equality. Because those are the debates that women have every damn day. Mm-hmm. Every single time. Including which way to walk home. Should I? I have earphones in my car. Yeah. Just so that I can plug them in if I'm working somewhere and I don't want to be disturbed. That shouldn't be a protection device. I should be listening to music because I want to. Not because you have to. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Those yeah. Are, that's what... I think equality would look like to me. Okay. Okay. And what would, what policies would you hope would change to sort of usher that kind of, that kind of, not even future, that kind of world? Mm. Yeah. Because you engage with policies a lot. A lot. A lot. A lot. Yeah. I think we're still in a place where um, even with the policies, people don't understand the importance of that policy. So I think what needs to change is a mindset. Mm. 
people need to know why we're pushing for, say, more women or more youth. People don't get it and, and they don't see why it's necessary and why it's important. Because right now it's women. I mean, if it was the other way around, how would you feel? So even right now, we are doing the interviews for CJ, Chief GM. Justice. Yes. And the comments that I'm seeing, I haven't said anything. But the comments that I'm seeing is, oh, a woman can't be CJ because the deputy is CJ. And I'm like, flip that. Like, how many positions are male and male? Look at our president. The deputy's president is male. We don't question that. Or any position, really, truly. But when it comes to women, all of a sudden, they both can't be women. But why can't we see that with all? Mm. They both can't be the same sex. Mm. As as soon as we, we realize that it's important to have representation of both, I think that we'll begin to see a change in all policies related to that. But as soon as it's one-sided conversation, it's it's totally unfair. But let's be frank, even the interviews that we've watched, the women are doing way better than the men. Let's be honest. They are overqualified, they are more than qualified, they are answering the questions well, the men are just sarcastic, and honestly, they're always looking for an escape. A lot of them comment things where, it's like, there's no way you can be CJ. They're not the same, they're not the same level. And that's also something that I've seen with our cabinet secretary appointments. Why must the women have PhDs? They all have PhDs. Mm. They all have PhDs. Or the other time we had a cabinet secretary, we were debating whether he finished school. But he sits on the same platform with a woman with a PhD. That's not fair. That's not fair. So I feel like we put too much pressure on women to overperform just to make it to the same level of a mediocre man. No. I think people just need to realize that, see it, for what it is, and we need to be frank that it's happening, and we need to be intentional about changing that. There's too much pressure on our girls. Mm. There's too much. And now look at KCP. Mm. <laughs> All the top three are girls. The results just came out yesterday, yeah. yeah. All the top three are girls. There's a lot of pressure on girls to perform. Because it's like, if you don't perform, you will not make it anywhere. But a, a man, yeah, perform well, but, you know, just do well. But a girl, you have to be the best of the best to be able to make it. And that's something we're not seeing. Mm. Mm. Okay. If you could speak to any person who's listening and is wondering, what can I do to step up? What can I do to be a leader? What can I do? What would you say based on the lessons that you have learned with your own journey? Mm. Yeah is to be brave, to be brave. Because a lot of times I think we are, we all get to that point where we're irked. Like there's something just, just bothering us, mm. you know? But then we don't take the courage to do something about it. It's very few people who are like, okay, you know what? Like this pothole that I'm passing every day, it's getting on my damn nerves. Mm. I'm going to do something about it. But we all see the pothole, we all feel it, and it's bothering us. So I'd say... Be brave about doing something different about it rather than just to brush it off. 
and hope somebody else is going to take care of that. Because I think that you are that somebody. You are that somebody. And to realize that you are that somebody. And also, you don't have to be perfect. Mm. I think a lot of times people feel, ah, I would do something, I would say something, but I'm not there yet. And and a lot of times that even stops us from doing anything before we've even tried um, or before we even start. Yeah. So it's to be able to just mute those voices and just do it anyway. Do anything rather than just to be silent. Yeah. I think it's so important. Okay. Favorite song or musician? Uh, eh, musician, I don't know. Favorite yeah. song. I listen to such diverse music, man. Okay. Um, I have a favorite song. It doesn't have to be one. Just just a song ah, that you go back to uh-huh. every so often. Or yeah, I like I like Desiree, mm-hmm. and this the song of hers called uh, "You Gotta Be." Okay, I like it because those words. <laughs> my friends say this is like my my pep song. Mm. Uh, so an, a 90s song mm. where it just talks about you got to be strong, you got to be tough, you know? And you also have to be knowledgeable, but sometimes gentle. So it just reminds me of some of the the qualities that I have to carry with me every day. And I need that pep talk every day. Um because as much as people would say, ah, oh, but uh, you do you do media all the time. I'm nervous every single time. Mm. It never goes. And and that's the thing for people to realize. You don't get used to it. And so it reminds me of that. But when it comes to music, I listen to things like across the board, from classical to West Indies to African music. I mean, to pop. Mm. It just depends on my mood. Okay. I have too much of music. Mm. That's a great thing. Um, favorite book, mantra, any line that you recall that you hold on to? My, I have, I have several books that I really like. But I think one book that I found funny and also engaging is Angelique Kijo, mm-hmm. Spirited Away. Mm. I like how she... She just talks about her life and her upbringing and her spirit intertwined in that. So I love the connection that she makes with her spiritual self and her physical being. And I like to think of myself that way as well. I'm a very spiritual person. And and I believe that we're all spiritual beings before human. So that's important. And um, my favorite movie, though, is the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. Yeah. Just because it's about revenge. Okay. Slow revenge. Mm. <laughs> and then you laugh. <laughs> Favorite food? I love biryani. Okay. I love biryani. Although it sometimes gives me um, memories because every time I was doing something huge, um, like when I moved to the States, or when I was starting my organization, my mom would cook it. My mom would cook it. So I think it was her way of like comforting me uh, or her way of, you know, sort of encouraging me it's going to be okay. So every time I eat it, I tend to eat too much of it. Yeah. <laughs> because I also 
trying to eat the emotions of it, but it's biryani. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Final words? Uh, final words is don't judge a book by its cover. Mm. Don't, because that has taught me a lot. And because of that, I find myself interacting with all sorts of people and learning so much from them. And something my mom always tells me is, you always love the most difficult people. Mm. <laughs> and it's because I always find a quality in everybody that you can learn from, even the most difficult of people. There are qualities in them that you can learn from. And you don't have to be their best friend, but you can definitely learn, learn from, from them. them. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Thanks, Kibali. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. <laughs> so, bye, guys. Hope you enjoyed that. Catch the next episode same time next week.